Welcome to the Stott Legacy. He is within us. He shares in the pain and identifies him. We must not ask God to change his timetable because we're getting a little bit impatient. Or think of the beginning of the first letter of Peter when he says that we were chosen by God the Father. It is 2021 and this marks the centenary of the birth of John Stott in central London. He holds a unique place in 20th century church history, not just because of his impact on the British church, but because of his impact on the global church. So throughout the year, we will meet a broad range of people from across the world, both women and men who knew him and worked closely with him, as well as those who never met him, but were nevertheless shaped by his preaching and writing. My name is Mark Mennell, and I hope you will join me as we explore inspiration, challenges, and insights from the life of Uncle John. And it is now recording. Let's see if this works. You can hear me okay? Yes. Can you? And I, I can hear you. Good. Today, we're meeting Kostya Milkov, whose life and ministry has been profoundly shaped by meeting John Stott at a conference in Poland in the early 90s and then getting to know him in subsequent visits to London and elsewhere. Costa was a Langham scholar, which means his doctoral studies in Oxford in the UK were funded by Langham. And his field of study was patristics, actually encouraged by John himself. That is the area of the teaching and influence of the leaders of the early church in the first four or five centuries or so. Costa now is a writer and teacher, and in fact, a published poet and writer of short stories. As if that was not enough, he's the one who spearheaded the work of Langham preaching in his home country of Macedonia. And it's been one of my deepest joys to have known Costa as a close friend for many years. I've stayed with him and Nada in Skopje and seen the institution they set up there at first hand, that is the Balkans Institute of Faith and Culture. So here Costa explains how the institute was set up. The Balkanese trade and culture was established back in 2011 after my wife and I uh, spending four and a half years in, in the UK doing respectively our, my doctor uh, DPhil and, and she doing her masters in uh, international publishing. So we came back to Macedonia and uh, reconnected with the culture, uh, prayed for a year to see where God was leading us. And eventually in 2011, we, this, this uh, came and the vision of that is really how to connect the best practices, the best theories, the best examples of uh, Christian faith to apply them uh, to uh, our immediate context in Macedonia. The vision has always been helping church and society. Um, it's interesting that it's the Balkans Institute rather than Macedonia. So you're thinking regionally, aren't you? Definitely. We were thinking about the, the, the whole region, which is also culturally uh, connected. Uh, historically connected uh, to a certain extent, not everything, obviously, but also kind of a, uh, it is based within the same uh, family of languages, which are the Slavic languages as such. Also, uh, obviously, the Eastern Christendom has been very, very present here. That is our legacy uh, as a region. And uh, uh, putting all of these things together, we thought the, the best way how we be, will be represented will be uh, putting the name Balkan in front of the uh, Institute of Faith and Culture. Is there a particular inspiration or were there models that you were 
emulating? Uh, yes, uh, among among uh, several of those, I will definitely say uh, I had the privilege to spend uh, uh, some time at the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity. It was established by John Stott at that time when I actually went in 1994. Uh, he was quite heavily engaged with the program there. And I was uh, definitely uh, very inspired by, first of all, by John himself, and also the environment and the context that uh, was established at the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity, which was actually much wider than the name could uh, indicate. When I went there, there were many, many people from all over the world uh, coming that were invited uh, uh, to the Institute to spend, some of us spent a month, some of us spent three months there, and they were able basically to engage uh, with some of the latest development in uh, theological and cultural thinking and theory uh, and apply them to their own uh, respective cultures. Literally, there were people from all over the world. You had to be invited to come on that, though, did you? Or could you apply? Yes. Uh, well, in my case, I was invited. The way how, how all of this has happened is, is I would say, really interesting. Or, or as, a, as a, a follower of Christ, I would say there was a God's providence involved in it. I was a young student uh, towards the end of, uh, actually in the middle of 1994, during the spring uh, conference of European side of IFES. Uh, which the happened... International Fellowship of Evangelical Students. Evangelical Students, yes. And uh, this happened in, uh, in uh, Warsaw, Poland. So several thousand people, uh, students gathered together. I was one, I was there just about finishing my theological studies and I joined the Croatian team actually uh, as, a, as a translator. And as I was interpreting the main speakers, the main speaker there was uh, John Stott. I have read good amount of works by John Stott by that time. So uh, uh, the latest book I wrote just before I came uh, to the conference was Essentials, a book that he wrote as a response, basically, to some of the claims of a liberal uh, historian, David Edwards. And I was really, uh, as a young student, that was a, a totally new field for me to see how how actually the evangelical, let's say, conservative Christianity relates to a more liberal Christianity and uh, to see it, how it Why works. Why was that new? Well, I come from a background where basically uh, the Christianity was very nominal and also the churches that, that, that developed as evangelical churches were more or less, all of them were uh, evangelical and conservative. So I haven't had any experience to uh, encounter uh, a liberal Christian, like that, that would be a, a regular thing, perhaps for the for the people in in the West. So I, I I was learning about all of that, all of these things, but I've never encountered a direct dialogue between a conservative evangelical Christian and a, and a liberal Christian. And I was taken both both by the basically the way how those these two people uh, communicated with each other, how they were very in a way strong and sharp about their own views and about their own arguments, but also at the same time very civil and, and how they were uh, in a way trying to acknowledge uh, the strengths of the other side and also realize uh, where their weaknesses uh, uh, were there. So I was actually fascinating by the debate, fascinating by the way how John Stott was dealing with the whole process. But also there was one chapter there that was on, on his kind of open uh, thinking and understanding about uh, what happens to, to people who basically were not believers and, and, and whether they go to hell or, or there is an annihilation and, 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 and such questions. And as a young student, 
uh, I was quite intrigued by that, by this, and I really wanted to talk to, to uh, John if, if possible. So he didn't know I existed. He didn't know me uh, at that How time. old were you then? I was 24, just almost 24. I was 23. Uh, John Stott came every morning, very early, I think seven o'clock, uh, to debrief us as interpreters about what he was going to say, to say some uh, interesting English words that might be difficult for us to inter to translate. Any names of birds or anything like that that he included? Uh, actually, peacock. That was the first time I heard that. <laughs> I didn't know what peacock meant. So that, exactly, exactly. You just, I mean, you're reading my mind. I, I thought, hmm, I would love to talk to him. So I went to his, uh, at, then, at that time, uh, who was his assistant, I tried to ask him if I could arrange a short meeting, brief meeting with John Stott. So uh, I talked to him and he looked at the, at the schedule of those days uh, and he says he's packed between seven o'clock when he comes to see you until whatever, nine o'clock when he goes to bed. And then I say, but because he debriefs us at seven o'clock, what does he do at 6.30 a.m.? <laughs> he says, wow, actually... This is his only free 30 minutes he has when he's, when he's awake. These are the only 30 minutes he has for himself in the day while he's here. Wow. But because he told me, whoever asks, if they ask, even if I have to say no, you cannot tell them no on my behalf. You need to talk to me, run their question, and then you answer them. So he said, I know 6.30 is too early. It is the only 30 minutes he's got, but I have to ask him. He went and asked him, I don't know, 10 minutes later, he comes back and he says, we are good to go. Tomorrow morning, 6.30, he will meet you. I, I, I wow. was really so delighted, elated, basically. And then the very next morning, I go there. I'm on time. Of course, I, I was before the appointed time. And still, Uncle John beat me to that. So he was there earlier than I were. Wow. And he was sitting on a windowsill in a very dismal-looking communist building with a full, full of draft. He was sitting there and basically shivering. It was cold. Uh, to me, that spoke volumes. I'm I mean, he must have been in his 70s then, I guess. He was, he was just about 94, so he was 72 or 3, I think, 73, <laughs> I, I believe, yeah. To me, that scene, just seeing him from a side and me approaching, to this very day, I can imagine the, the scene. So I came to him. He was very warm, very approachable. There was nothing that I had to kind of try my way around in order to impress him or anything like that. Uh, he put me immediately at ease. We had a very nice conversation. I asked him my questions about uh, some of his thoughts in, in the book Essentials. He, he told me what he thought, and also he told me that he didn't have a very, very definite uh, uh, view on, on the particular issue. But the most interesting part of that was, as we were parting uh, each other, he turned to his assistant and he said, you need to enroll him, you invite him. I had no that idea. That sounds ominous. <laughs> yeah, I didn't have a clue what he meant by that. So the assistant turned to me and he said, oh, we have work to do. I said, what that means? And uh, he said, well, he's actually inviting you to come to the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Then they wrote to me a formal letter with invitation. I had to have a visa at the time in order to travel to the UK, etc. Because I was finishing my, my uh, theological school then and I had to start work for a church at the time in Macedonia. So I felt I couldn't just uh, leave immediately for another three months. So I wrote back and I said, can I come for a shorter period of time? And they were very, very glad to have me. And I think I spent five weeks in total. And, and what uh, sort of things did you cover in those five weeks? It was all related. Uh, uh, it was about uh, actually creation, uh, <laughs> creation and uh, a little bit of science and faith. 
and also creativity. A lot of a lot of way of how to be creative in engaging with the Bible and the and the word the word of God and how to express it. Also, Had you started uh, writing poetry at that stage? Because <laughs> I, I know a, that you're a published poet. Uh, that spoke volumes to me because I mean uh, it wasn't something that triggered in in me because uh, if if I have not started follow the path of theology, perhaps I would have I would have followed the path of literature, literature anyhow. From early stages in my life, that was perhaps a prominent feature in my development. So I, I did that with some prose and poetry even before that. But actually, it was such a welcoming environment. Because I must say, now that you have mentioned it, when I went to study theology, uh, there was even one aspect that I started later on, uh, I almost started regretting. It was I was so immersed in my theological world that I have somehow uh, started neglecting my uh, the things that I enjoyed, which was like reading uh, vast uh, volumes of, uh, of of just literature, both poetry and and uh, uh, novels and etc. And I must say, during those four years of my theological studies, for one reason or another, uh, that has stopped. And and in a reconstruction, I think the school itself didn't have enough uh, kind of incentive to think that this was such an important aspect. Uh, for the students to engage with and help them uh, channel it. Uh, so that when I came to the uh, London Institute for Contemporary Christianity, that one aspect, again, perhaps was actually uh, a way for me to rebounce back mm. into uh, something which, which felt very comfortable for me, but I have somehow uh, come to neglect it. So I guess you can say that LICC helped you reintegrate I mean, integration was a favorite word of Uncle John's, wasn't it? It, it? Very much so. And also it helped both myself, but also through, through my experience. And also I'm, I'm glad to say my wife had a chance to, to, to meet uh, Uncle John at a few occasions, but also to be distilled. That experience was distilled through me also with her as we were discussing uh, uh, some of these issues. And uh, that was very formative. We have always felt this deep, call from God that we need to that we need to engage with culture but the John Stott and the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity have also helped us shape form and perhaps be more more um, uh, in a way uh, uh, defined about uh, what steps to take in order to engage uh, and and fulfill our call uh, in the future you mentioned that you came to Oxford but that wasn't directly after this point. Do you want to unpack the journey that led to doing a DPhil in Oxford? Yes. Uh, because so John had something to do with that, didn't he? Uh, definitely, definitely. When, <laughs> I, when, I came, uh, when I came to the Longest Institute for Contemporary Christianity, uh, John came uh, on a regular, I think once a week or something, to, to be with us, to, to lecture. Uh, also, we had a, a very nice uh, Christmas uh, Christmas dinner in 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 the place, and we sat together. So, at few of those occasions, and and also for one time where he took me aside for for maybe a forty five minutes or an hour conversation, we were able to actually talk about my own theological development. Uh, we both knew someone. He also influenced someone in in his early stages of develop theological development. His name is Miroslav Wolf. He's a professor of uh, theology at Yale right now, but also they corresponded. During, during the time when Miroslav Wolf was studying at Tübingen, I know of that Miroslav told me that, that they were corresponding uh, with uh, uh, Uncle John as well. And according to his words, uh, John really uh, had a very, very uh, strong influence during those days. 
And just and, to clarify, uh, you did your theology in Croatia, didn't you? In Croatia, yeah. and Miroslav Volf used to come and teach us uh, some of the major theological classes there. So we also talked about him. You know, that was a common ground that we started sharing. And then Uncle John started asking me about my theological education. And I explained, I was already, at that time, I was thinking about systematic theology as such, you know, follow what my mentor at the time, Miroslav Wolf, was uh, kind of uh, showing me the way. As we were discussing, he said, well, yeah, I know we, we have a lot of, uh, I was also picking on his own wisdom, on, on his mind to tell me some advices and etc. And he said, well, we have a lot of biblical scholars, plenty of those like New Testament and, and all that. We also have from some fine, very fine, finest uh, systematic theologians. But he said, what I think we don't have in the evangelical world as much is really uh, patristic scholars. I think the conversation was going uh, in that direction because uh, I was unpacking, explaining my own background, which means I came from a country into which the Eastern Orthodoxy is the main confession. And of course, Eastern Orthodoxy is, they want to think of themselves as a development of the Eastern patristics, basically, you know. The church fathers. The church fathers, yes. And, and that was a conversation that actually started me on a journey. I wouldn't say I made up my mind immediately after that uh, talk, but it certainly shaped the way of how I was, I was thinking about my future theological education. Well, later, a couple of years later, I ended up in the United States at the Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. I, I studied Master of Arts in Theology. That was a degree I got. But I was able also to, to uh, take classes from uh, other schools. Right? It was called Boston Theological Institute. So I was able to take classes at Boston University, Harvard Divinity School, Andover Newton. Among those schools, also one class I took was at the Holy Cross uh, School of Theology, Orthodox, Greek Orthodox School of Theology. And that's where I discovered uh, Gregory Palamas. And he is a 14th century uh, monk and an author uh, who actually wrote on a very significant topic, uh, perhaps one of the, the final uh, Byzantine theological breakthroughs in theology before actually the collapse of the Byzantine Empire under the Ottomans. And that led me even further down into a patristic uh, thinking because obviously much of what Gregory said in the 14th century was shaped by uh, authors from the 4th and 5th uh, century as well. Is it true to say then that unless you'd had that conversation with Uncle John, you wouldn't have taken that um, other course in patristics? It would be unlikely for me, uh, as I was under the influence of so much of, let's call it a Western uh, theological training. And because also of your evangelical up, background. Yes, of the evangelical background, but, but also I grew up in a context into which, and, and this is not a, I mean, I'm not, I'm not really judging that, that particular background. I understand that people who were coming from that tiny minority in Macedonia, they were doubly excluded. First of all, not being part of the ma major confession, which was also almost identified, if you're not Eastern Orthodox, you're really not a Macedonian, you know? And uh -huh. uh, number one- and Will be similar thing, to Serbia as well? Yeah, exactly. Uh, but also on the other side, uh, I grew up in a co uh, during communism, my, my, my first 20 years of life. And, um, and people, people had to actually uh, find way of surviving and keeping their faith, uh, being doubly excluded. So I come from this kind of a subculture in which uh, most of the things that I knew about Eastern Orthodoxy were basically uh, the, 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 the sur on the surface, the folk religion of people, which, which uh, was mostly uh, based on, on a lot of ignorance, I must say. And the second thing, of course, religion was at least we were 
uh, at least not not encouraged or tacitly in many ways uh, uh, and openly discouraged to to say the least. So all of that has built perhaps some something into my subconsciousness, uh, some so, sort of a, a kind of resistance to anything else than what I knew was the haven of of my own understanding of what uh, fate was all about. So it would have been if I could had I continued in in such pace perhaps. I would have only, maybe I would have developed uh, again uh, a more broad and more understanding uh, approach to, to other uh, Christian confessions. Uh, but uh, certainly it would be unlikely that I would have chosen He definitely that. gave you a prod, didn't he? He pushed yes, you in that direction. direction and also a, a very good advice and also came from someone that I really uh, trusted, you know, uh, whose were, and also other people that we uh, engaged because he had such a vast influence on so, on so many people. So we agreed that this, this person was in, in, such, in such way, uh, I, would, I would dare say exceptional, really. Mm. And therefore, uh, that led me to my uh, decision of going and studying, uh, taking a class, first of all, with an Eastern Orthodox professor on, on Gregory Palamak. Over the next few years, then, that developed into, a, a, I guess, a passion, really, didn't it? Because you ended up doing a doctorate in patristics in Oxford, which is one of those centers of patristic study. Um, and you came as a Langham scholar. So how did that come about? This really whet my appetite. As I graduated from, uh, from uh, Gordon Cornwall, we came back and uh, we worked for uh, seven years for uh, IFES. We established the national student movement in Macedonia called SEAM. And that was also the time when I was more exposed uh, because of the close ties between John Stott and IFES. I was able to see him at other occasions, whatever IFES was organizing, he would come as a main, uh, main uh, key, keynote speaker and et cetera. And, and we started this conversation in, back in 1994. He told me, we don't issue any grants for masters, but once you're ready for a doctorate, you write to me and tell me, and I will see what I can do in order to get you, to get you a Langham scholarship. So that is in, two, in 1994. So we are going through, through, almost, through a decade, basically, of uh, seeing each other, talking to each other, and he's always very faithful to the promise. And he's always only, whenever we see each other, is also, whenever you're ready, whenever you feel you can, you can do it, just let me know. And then in 2003, I started preparing. We thought that that was a, a, a good time for us to start thinking about the next, the next step. And in 2003, I wrote to uh, uh, John Stott and in uh, 2004, it was the pro uh, they accepted that I, he encouraged me to apply. In 2004, I applied and then it, I was accepted uh, both at Oxford for 2005 DPhil, but also I would, I would have not been able to do it. Uh, had it not been for uh, the Langham Scholarship, which was also granted for the full length of my doctoral studies. I mean, that story is told by many people around the world, isn't it? I mean, I think that's the extraordinary thing about Langham Scholars is so many people who would never in a million years have been able to afford, let alone imagine, doing a doctoral program. Um, so it's thrilling to hear that things slotted into place for you. This rings so through. Uh, when you are saying this, Mark, because when I also had the privilege, oh, by chance, to be at the memorial service in St. Paul's. St. Paul's Cathedral. St. Paul's Cathedral. I listened to all of those people paying tribute to him. Uh, the feeling was like I could have seconded 
all of those experiences and said, this is exactly, this is not something that was, uh, that I didn't experience. I could have shared the very same words that these people mm. standing there speaking of Uncle John. Uh, so that was him, that was him. I think as, as much as we can say, as much as we can tell, and we don't want to just develop hagiographies you know, in ways that, that, are, that are just uh, not, not quite fully truthful because we never know exactly 100% uh, what is going on in human mind and human heart. And we all come with our faults or whatever. And he was uh, completely uh, open to admit that, wasn't he? Uh, absolutely. And th- I think some of the charm and the appeal of, of uh, uh, John Stott was exactly that. Uh, in a way, again, the hand of God was above, above him, clearly. He was an, an anointed minister of God, uh, a man for such a time as this, I would, I, would, I would dare say. However, because he was so transparent, so open, and also vulnerable, I would say the integration he was looking for was also uh, possible to happen uh, uh, also through the way of how he was actually vulnerable with other people. So because he was vulnerable with other people, people felt safe around him. And also we didn't develop some sort of uh, unhealthy uh, attitudes towards him and glorifying him uh, in context and to an extent which was actually not healthy. That's interesting. So he wasn't the archetype of a celebrity. No. He was the opposite of anything. The anti-celebrity. The anti-celebrity. The way how he was actually behaving on the stage and the way how he was sitting at a table and and conversing with him, he was able to bring both the mass and the individual to a place where Mm. he was actually only the light. He was, if I may say, he was like the finger that was pointing to the moon and he didn't want you to look at the finger. So you look in the direction where he pointed, but that was not the point. The point was something else, much greater. Ultimately to Christ. We'll pause there to hand over to Esteban Amestegui in Cochabamba, Bolivia. Esteban is the PA to the Latin America Director for Langham Preaching. But here he talks about how he's been impacted by an older stock book, uh, one that's now been republished in the UK under the title of But I Say to You, Uh, formerly known as Christ the Controversialist. Some recommend not to talk about politics and religion at the table. However, Christ the Controversialist shows us that the discussions between liberals and conservatives have been repeating themselves through history. Jesus faced the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Paul discussed with the Judaizers and the Gnostics. The Reformers also had some similar battles in their time. The internet and social media have created a lot of opportunities for dialogue and interaction. Nonetheless, it also has exacerbated the difference between one group and another with their alienating bubbles. That's why this book is still so relevant these days. It showed me that I could be thinking like a Sadducee in some aspects and made me repent. It also confirmed some beliefs that I wasn't sure of defending. Despite being very intellectual and argumentative, this book is very Christ-centered and has a calling to holistically live the gospel. The church's mission reflects the son's mission, and both express the character of the father. He's not the judge only, but the savior. He's the shepherd of lost sheep, the doctor of sick souls. 
a father of infinite patience. Now he sends us out into the world, just like he sent Christ. Not to run away and escape, but to enter the pain of distressed humanity, to be channels of the love of God as both servants and witnesses, to bring what relief we can and the good news of salvation. This is our responsibility. Nothing less than costly involvement is Christian. To withdraw is pharisaic. As our Lord took on our flesh, so he calls his church to take on the secular world. To refuse to do so is to refuse to take the Incarnation seriously. I want to ask a bit more about the Balkans Institute. You're thinking in terms of the culture, the arts, politics. You've got fingers in lots of different pies. Tell us what, what thinking lies behind that. How does it all hold together? Some of the patristic studies uh, have helped me. Reading Justin Martyr, he thought that actually... What, dates were, what sort of century was he? Mid-second century. He basically has this kind of theory about the logos, spermaticos, as he calls it, or the, 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 word, the, the seeds of the word of God that are spoken. And whatever is true, whatever is beautiful, whatever is good, when it comes, when it is revealed, uh, it, it cannot come from anywhere else but from God, because everything that is good, everything that is true and everything that is beautiful can be only God's and therefore God can claim uh, all because he's the, the creator so this is kind of a this part of an integration between uh, what we call because actually between creation how God creates the world how God sustains the world and how God saves the world it's the same God uh, to me as someone who really loves uh, uh, literature uh, we were we, we were so keen uh, to see, uh, also translating good literature into Macedonian from some classical authors, but also encouraging local authors to engage in writing and not necessarily only theological uh, uh, topics, but actually uh, anything that is related uh, to their own uh, um, artistic expression. So we have helped uh, several local authors publish poetry, for example, in, in Macedonian. I have published a couple of uh, books uh, a children's novel, uh, mm. some poetry, a few collections of poetry, and also a collection, two collections of short stories. And all of these are not necessarily directly, uh, uh, or the vast majority of them are not even addressing the issue of faith or God or the Trinity or something like that, but they're deeply, deeply embedded in, uh, in, the, in, in the spirit of how I actually experience the world. And the deepest point of that exper experience is God. And that comes uh, in a way, uh, in between the lines, if I may say. Because you are made in the image of God, then yes. what is, whatever is true or noble that comes from you comes ultimately from him. Amen, amen. And I'm, I'm completely com uh, uh, committed to this truth. It does help, doesn't it, that um, you married someone who started a, a publishing house, doesn't it? Uh, my wife, <laughs> Nada, uh, who is yeah. uh, by, by background, she, she has been uh, the mastermind behind the development of the publishing work. Uh, she had a very, very significant influence on me to, uh, when, whenever I thought that uh, I, was, I was quite, in a way, satisfied with, with the way of how things were developing. Uh, I must say God has used her to be the instrument of asking the question of the status quo. Uh, how do we actually deal with this? what is the next step? We, uh, he, she had the better premonition than mm. I did, I must say, many of those things. So I, 
I think in, in that way, we were very co compatible. We, we, we actually worked together. We, we, I, I, I'm so glad to say it was possible for us to actually use our best strengths to help each other and also then uh, uh, alleviate some of our uh, weaknesses as well. That was wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Is it fair to say that uh, what Justin Martyr picks up could relate, say, in a more Protestant formulation to common grace? Uh, Mark, I think, I think what Abraham Kuyper said was basically an echo of huh. what Justin Martyr said when he says that to everything, every inch, every square, I don't know by, by heart, but it's something about every uh, inch of the, of the universe, uh, Christ claims it's mine. And yes. it's really come to the same thing. It really comes. And, yes. and he was as Protestant and as reformed as you can imagine. And I am so glad that I have had the benefit of being taught and, and developed under, under the influence of such a uh, legacy of the Protestant and reformed and, and, uh, and also the variety, actually, of, of whatever Protestantism, Protestantism can offer. But also mm -hmm. at the same time, I uh, had the privilege of engaging with um, uh, the Eastern Orthodoxy or the Eastern Christian uh, Christian patristics or the early church fathers from the fourth century onwards. However, let me come back to the to why we believe in, in integration in the Balkan East for Britain culture. It is simply because we believe that we need to honor uh, God by honoring his image. In our case, uh, we would we would always preach Christ and that is the ultimate goal. However, people are never to be targets. Mm. We want to befriend people because of the dignity that they carry as image and likeness of God. And you want to be friends with them. If they're Muslims, you want to be friends with them. If they're atheists, you want to be friends with them because of who they are, not of what you want them to become. Mm. And then allow God through this creative way of actually reflecting on what these people can bring to, to the table of goodness and beauty and flourishing in the world, hopefully they're going to see Christ. That nobody is an instrument for our purposes. They are fellow members of the human race made in God's image. It's fundamental. Definitely. And, and, mm. and then being so transparent with them. Uh, that I mean, the Balkan Institute for Faith and Culture basically... Uh, I believe an aspect of it, if I may say so, of, of its success is that it is such a welcoming, uh, neutral environment that is uh, felt that anyone can come without having uh, the, the need to explain themselves, to defend themselves mm. or be something else what they are not, and then uh, encounter and engage with what also we never, we never hide who we are, where do we come from? And what do we stand for? But at the same time, we are absolutely happy to have people come in uh, and bring some of their experience, some of their creativity, some of their mind, some of their uh, scientific research, uh, regardless whether they're Christians or not. Mm -hmm. Also, we have tried to help local artists like painters. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm so glad to say that uh, as, with one particular uh, person, we can say that we have uh, try to encourage them to stay in Macedonia, to encourage them to follow their dream of, of such a vast potential and creativity. And from the moment when we started that until the moment where they are now, we can clearly say there is a tra trajectory and development that now we are encountered with an artist, with a painter mm. par excellence. We have learned perhaps uh, from the best, uh, among which I certainly put uh, John Stott in, that vulnerability and integration go uh, hand in hand 
if we really want to honor God because we honor his image. Costa, that's, that's inspiring. I think we will try and put various links and things onto the blog post to go with this episode. But sadly, we must draw to some kind of conclusion. I'd love to talk all day. In fact, we have often talked all day about <laughs> this and that. Um, I wonder as we conclude, what you've learned most from Uncle John, perhaps maybe you've disagreed with him on some points and you know, you've been pushed to think and, and in the end decided that that's not where you would go. But the legacy on your life, how, how would you sum that up? Well, I have read a lot of works by, by John Stott and I mentioned Essentials was very, very important. You read all 51 of them. <laughs> I haven't counted, but quite a lot of them. I, I, I must say that that has never been something that uh, with the annihilation uh, uh, approach about the condition of the soul in, uh, mm. after that and etc. I've never particularly bought into that, but I explained okay. why. I explain it, it, mm. I, I'm not saying just, just randomly this. Uh, the, the, the most important the, the, in, in the influential book into my life uh, has been, I have to say, The Cross of Christ. That's the book that I have read. I've read several times. Mm. And uh, uh, the book has always came fresh, has always came like original, and, and, uh, but at the same time, not original in a way that uh, I've never heard this, but mm. original in a way how I actually could see what John Stott was trying to say about the cross and about the atonement in the Bible and how it, I can appropriate it into my own thinking. So that mm. was the most important influence uh, uh, John Stott had in terms of his writing on me. Uh, at the same time, uh, I still can uh, remember moments uh, when I was reading uh, this book, let's say in a, on a train, even on such places where the actual prose, the actual way of how John is writing that, the conviction, the elegance and the lightness of all of that, bringing it on the surface, has actually affected me as I was reading a novel, rather not, more mm -hmm. a novel rather than a, a very heavy, thick book on, on, <laughs> on, on the atonement and, and, and the cross of Christ and dying and, and salvation, etc. At the same time, I must say, uh, John Stott has also was ca the catalyst of me disagreeing with him because mm -hmm. he directed me towards patristics. And I have read a lot of, the, of, of that. And I must say, one very welcoming aspect, as far as I'm concerned in my reading, was that I have somehow adjusted and maybe made a complementary uh, uh, theological uh, thinking to the more kind of Western and I would say more John Stott understanding of the atonement. I want to believe there is a beautiful addition and complementary that, that actually the, the uh, Protestant or the evangelical world needs to be more attuned to because there is richness and wealth to be uh, grabbed from there. Costa, well, I know that I have benefited from you when you've taught on different topics, bringing a patristic um, angle on things. Um, but I guess that'll have to be the topic of another podcast. Are we going to have to wrap it up there? But I want to thank you profusely for your time today. Thank you very much for, for joining me. I think this has been a fascinating and encouraging conversation. Our prayer point this time is for Langham Scholars and the International Programme Director Riyad Cassis, who is based in Lebanon. He and his team have, well, the very challenging task each year of sifting through the scores of worthy applicants for scholarships and having to decide who should be the recipients. 
So please do pray for wisdom and insight as they do this, not least because each scholarship comes with a commitment to pastoral care and support for each scholar for many years to come. You've been listening to The Stop Legacy with me, Mark Mennell. Thank you very much for listening. In particular, I want to thank Vic Marseille, my colleague uh, who works with Langham Partnership UK and Ireland. She has been slogging away in the background, working very hard, putting all the ingredients to these episodes together, editing and polishing and producing a first-class job. If you want to find out more about uh, Langham Partnership, you can go to langham.org, that is L-A-N-G-H-A-M.org. Also, if you want to find out more about John Stott himself and anything that's happening for this centenary year, then go to the website johnstott, all one word, .org. And on that site, you'll find a blog for this podcast with links and photographs for each episode. That's johnstott.org forward slash podcast. Until next time, goodbye.